Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode is from a recent ACS webinar that offered information on the burden of emergency gastrointestinal surgery in resource-constrained settings, its effects on patient outcomes, and evidence-based solutions that surgeons can implement to improve surgical access and quality in similar settings. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you for joining us today for the ACS uh, International Relations Committee webinar on uh, emergency gastrointestinal surgery, uh, improving outcomes in resource-constrained settings. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Robert Parker and Dr. Catherine Chu. Today, they will share their insight on the burden of emergency gastrointestinal surgery in resource-constrained settings and its effect on patient outcomes in the area in the areas where the presenters work internationally. So we uh, first welcome Dr. Parker, Robert Parker. Uh, Dr. Parker is a general surgeon and the director of research at Tannenweck Hospital. As a surgeon, educator, and researcher, he has lived and worked in rural Kenya since 2015, focusing on improving access and quality of surgical care. He works closely with the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa and the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons to expand research capacity and surgical training. He is a member of the American College of Surgeons International Relations Committee. Dr. Parker. Hello. Um, thank you to the, the ACS International Relations Committee uh, for the opportunity uh, to um, present in this forum. And thank you, Dr. Negri, for moderating this important discussion. And thank you to my fellow presenter, Dr. Chu. It is an honor to share this platform with such accomplished individuals who've had an impact around the world. As we talk today about improving outcomes in emergency GI surgery in resource-constrained settings, I'm excited to present our work from my team and my institution, Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. I plan to discuss how a resident critical care service improved failure to rescue rates, the financial implications of complications, and the impact of trainee operative autonomy on patient outcomes. Um, I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. As background for the problem, gastrointestinal surgery carries a high risk of morbidity and mortality. Elective GI surgical procedures carry a relatively low to moderate risk of perioperative complications and mortality. Compared to elective surgery, emergency GI surgery is associated with significantly higher risks, sometimes reported to be as high as eightfold. By definition, patients are presenting with acuity of disease that often results in compromised and critical states. Within my region, there have been few reports about the outcomes associated with laparotomies and the various problems requiring laparotomy. In Uganda, Hewitt Smith et al. conducted a year-long cohort study and found a 22% mortality rate among all laparotomies. In Malawi, there has been some excellent work reporting from a high-volume referral center, which has shown an overall mortality of 15% for emergency GI surgery. 18% for patients presenting with peritonitis, and a 22% mortality rate for patients with perforated ulcers. In Kenya, the National Referral Hospital reported 44% of all patients undergoing laparotomy experienced a major complication. In 2016, the impressive global surgery group from the National Institute for Health and Care Research in the United Kingdom oversaw a collaborative research effort reviewing over 10,000 patients who underwent emergency abdominal surgery. They compared outcomes across countries from low, middle, or high human development index and observed that mortality is three times higher in low compared to high development index countries. They noted that patient safety factors play a role and demonstrated that resource limitation impact postoperative outcomes. 
This background makes emergency GI surgery an ideal target for quality improvement projects around the world. Failure to rescue refers to the failure to prevent a death that results from the development of a post-operative complication. In contrast to the development of complications, which has been linked to both patient and hospital factors, failure to rescue appears to be largely due to hospital system factors, including delays in the recognition of a complication, relay of patient information, and reaction with appropriate initiation of treatment. In the, the subset of patients from the cohort from Uganda who underwent laparotomy that I previously mentioned had a 22% mortality rate, their failure to rescue rate was 56%. The authors in Malawi who reported a 15% mortality rate noted that the majority of their patients who died did not have a diagnosed complication, indicating the inability to recognize a post-operative complication. Failure to rescue has been identified as a potential target for quality improvement by many investigators in the region. Taking a wider picture to examine all operations, investigators from multiple countries in Africa conducted a seven-day prospective observational cohort study of adults undergoing any inpatient surgery in 25 countries throughout Africa. The authors concluded, despite a low-risk profile and few postoperative complications, patients in Africa were twice as likely to die after surgery when compared with the global average for postoperative deaths. Initiatives to increase access to surgical treatments in Africa, therefore, should be coupled with improved surveillance for deteriorating physiology in patients who develop postoperative complications and the resources necessary to achieve this objective. The group then created a surgical risk calculator to better understand and stratify risks. The model, the model was derived from over 8,000 patients from 168 hospitals throughout Africa. They determined that if the risk score was greater than or equal to 10 points, then patients should have increased postoperative surveillance after surgery. By definition, emergency GI surgery is characterized as high risk. As some background about where I work, Tenwak Hospital is a faith-based hospital in rural Western Kenya. Started in 1937, it cares for the surrounding community in Bomet County and has become a teaching and referral center serving a much larger population. Urgent or emergency operations make up about 50% of all operations performed. Many of these involve gastrointestinal indications. Patients routinely present for definitive care in a delayed fashion with advanced pathology, making them at high risk for complications. We have a five-year general surgery training program that was started in 2008 and typically graduates two to three general surgeons each year. The program is affiliated with the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa, COSEXA, and the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, PACS. Trainees are involved in all aspects of perioperative care. Upon graduation, these surgeons all serve in various hospitals in Kenya and provide excellent care. Our team aimed to evaluate the implementation of a dedicated surgical critical care service on failure to rescue rates. Led by Dr. Heath Maney and together with fourth year resident, Dr. Kamunto Otoki, who's pictured in red, we reviewed all patients who underwent emergency GI surgery between January 2016 and June 2019 at Tenwak Hospital. Within this time frame, a part-time surgical critical care service was initiated in January 2018. Surgical trainees were assigned to care for patients within the critical care units of the hospital during the day, each for a one-month rotation. Throughout the study period, critical care was performed in 13 continuously monitored beds with care including me mechanical ventilation, vasopressors and other drip medications, and staffed by dedicated nurses, some of whom had advanced critical care nursing training. During the intervention, which had a clearly defined start point, the assigned resident was supervised by a board-certified general surgeon with an interest in critical care or a fellowship-trained surgical intensivist. The critical care resident was expected to primarily care for critically ill patients during this time and was excused from operative and clinic duties. 
A critical care checklist was used daily during the care of patients. In addition, the resident participated in weekly didactics related to critical care topics and skill acquisition. Critical care capabilities were constant throughout the study period. The primary outcome that we studied was failure to rescue, which we defined as all-cause in-hospital mortality after the presence of a post-operative complication. Complications were predefined using objective criteria. A total of 484 patients were identified. 165 patients, or 34%, experienced post-operative complications. This included 49 mortalities, 10%, yielding a failure to rescue rate of almost 30%. There were 278 patients before the critical care service and 206 with the active critical care service. During the study period, we noted that there was an increase in patient severity of illness and surgical risk scores uh, increased with an average risk score going from 14.5 to 15.2. Despite this increase, the failure to rescue rate decreased after the implementation of the critical care service with rates of 36.8% before to 21.8% after. If there's not enough motivation to demonstrate the need to reduce complications in our context, there's further evidence to build on that complications drastically increase costs. As we discuss quality improvement with institutions like mine in resource-constrained settings, it is imperative to talk about the value of care, the quality improved divided by the cost of the initiative. We evaluated the cohort of patients that I just described to see the impact of complications on costs. We looked at direct and indirect costs of surgical care. Our institution as a not-for-profit hospital charges patients for the things that are necessary for care. We examined costs in international dollars with purchasing power parity, which is the universal cost for a basket of goods anywhere in the world. In the model that we created, we accounted for the various diagnoses and patient factors like severity of illness. We found there was an overall 77% increase in cost for patients who developed a complication, and the various types of complications increase costs differently. You can see the distributions of patients with and without complications. Those with complications had much higher costs. We also analyzed the collection rates, and the patients with complications were more likely to not be able to finance their care and have a remaining bill that becomes a burden for the hospital. In Kenyan shillings, this would be an approximate increase of 68,000 Kenyan shillings, or 664 US dollars. This amount is equal to 38% of the median annual income in Kenya. The surgical risk score um, that I described earlier that helps to predict severe complications based on patient variables. Our cohort of patients experienced fewer severe complications than predicted by the Africa Surgical Outcomes Study surgical risk score. We observed a 21% severe complication rate compared to an expected 32% rate. The incremental cost increase for a severe complication compared to no complication was 2,200 international dollars. Therefore, if our cohort had experienced the expected severe complication rate instead of the observed severe complication rate, the total hospital cost of the cohort would have increased by over 85,000 international dollars. Thus, the reduction of complications saves patients and hospital systems money. Investing in measures that reduce complications are a high-value, smart allocation of limited resources. As residents can improve post-operative care through a dedicated rotation in critical care, we also examine their role and autonomy during operations. Operative autonomy is an essential component to surgical training. We investigated the effect of meaningful training autonomy on severe post-operative complications and all-cause in-hospital mortality in the previously described cohort. Each operation was reviewed to determine the presence of meaningful autonomy, which we defined as supervision only from faculty. Comparisons were made between faculty-led cases and cases with meaningful training autonomy. We excluded 28 laparoscopic cases and three cases with missing data on autonomy. It should be noted that a majority of cases are led by trainees. Faculty were more involved in operations with patients of older age, 
who had cancer, had prior complications, or with higher risk scores. On unadjusted analysis, the presence of meaningful trainee autonomy resulted in an odds of mortality of 0.32 compared to faculty-led operations. The odds of developing complications were 0.52 for meaningful trainee autonomy. After adjusting for surgical risk scores and clustering discharge diagnoses, the odds of mortality and complications were no longer significant. Our findings support that trainee involvement does not compromise patient safety or outcomes. Further, in emergency GI operations, trainees and faculty appropriately discern patients at higher risk of complications and mortality. This is consistent with other literature emerging about the impact of trainee autonomy and demonstrates that high levels of autonomy can be achieved. As Dr. Turner, the executive director of the college said, providing high quality care is at the heart of everything we do as surgeons, and it has been the cornerstone of the American College of Surgeons since our founding in 1913. I hope to echo those thoughts. Each of us as surgeons has the opportunity to impact our communities. In my community, supervised resident surgeons are improving the quality of care that we can provide. I hope that this presentation demonstrates not only the need, but also inspires others toward potential solutions for their communities, wherever that may be. Next week, the American College of Surgeons, with the leadership of Dr. Clifford Coe and Dr. Haitham Kayafarani, together with Professor Ojuka and Dr. Mike Mochiro from the Surgical Society of Kenya, will be conducting a quality improvement workshop through a grant from the PON Fund. Surgeon leaders from Kenya will come together to learn, discuss, and ultimately teach quality improvement processes in our region. This is what we all do as surgeons, but putting the language and the emphasis will hopefully inspire all of us to improve. As we work to expand access to surgical care to meet the vast burden of disease within each of our settings, we can also continue to strive to improve the quality of care that we provide. So uh, let me just uh, say thank thanks to Dr. Parker for sharing the expertise and the information. And now I will uh, uh, introduce Dr. Catherine Chu. Uh, Dr. Chu is the inaugural director of the Center of Global Surgery and professor of global surgery at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. She is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and a fellow of the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons she received her undergraduate degree from Stanford University and completed her medical degree in, in general surgery residency at the University of California at San Francisco. She was a Fulbright Scholar at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She, was received, she, she received a master's degree in public health and developing countries and has co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed publications and all several international grants to improve access to quality surgical care in sub-Saharan Africa. Dr. Chu is a board member of the Consortium of University of Global Health and the Transformation and Innovation Committee for Medicine Sans Frontier. Dr. Chu. Thank you so much, Dr. Negri, and thank you so much to the committee for the invitation to speak today. Um, I'm going to quickly... Okay, great. Um, so just to get started. So we all know that we live in an inequitable world where things are just not equal and COVID pandemic really brought out some of these inequities. But this is a slide that I really like to demonstrate this. This is a view um, of Earth from satellite at night. And as you can see, certain parts of the world, certain continents are extremely lit up, particularly in the global north. But where Dr. Parker and I live in Sub-Saharan Africa, we're literally sitting in the dark. And if you compare that map with the map of the continents by their gross domestic product or a proxy of how wealthy um, a region is, you can see that certain areas such as North America, Western Europe, and South um, Asia and East Asia are extremely well represented, but Sub-Saharan Africa is basically non-existent. And if you contrast that once more with the trauma burden, so trauma and injury being a very important part of emergency surgical care, you see that Africa is extremely well represented where those very wealthy countries almost don't exist. So Dr. Parker has already outlined that emergency general surgery um, 
that the in, in sub-Saharan Africa, 60% of what we do in general surgery is emergent compared to only 10% in high-income countries. And within that, acute abdominal surgery is the most common general surgery type. And even in high-income countries, such as Denmark, emergency abdominal surgery is associated with a five times higher mortality compared to elective. And I saw on his slide, he said up to eight times in um, low and middle income countries. And I suspect in some areas, even higher. So, you know, what we're talking about emergency GI surgery, we're talking about operations that tend to complicate. Um, a specific um, study to show that some of the inequities is that if we look at outcomes from all over the world in gastrointestinal surgery, specifically surgical site infections, um, this was from Global Surge, um, from the UK NIHR um, funded study. We see a study of over 12,000 patients in 66 countries representing countries of different wealth incomes. We see that the greatest risk of surgical site infection was for the lowest income countries. And when we talk about the quality of care, I want to maybe go over specifically what it is that we're talking about, because the title of this webinar was Outcomes. And so what do we mean as surgeons by outcomes? Um, and so there is this model called the Donabedian model of quality care that some of you may be very, very familiar with. Donabedian was the, um, the person who developed this um, framework. But essentially, when we talk about outcomes uh, in, in the surgical world, we're often talking about mortality and then complications, and I'll use surgical site infection as an example. But outcomes, we mean what happens to the patient at the end. And you know there are many, many factors that go into this, um, but a one way of looking at it is structure, processes, and then to feed into process something called patient features. So I just wanted to spend a moment discussing what that is. So structure is often what the hospital provides, the infrastructure, so the operating rooms, whether or not there's an ICU or not, um, the human resources, the, the number of nurses, the ratio of surgeons per patients, the ratio of anesthesiologists per surgeons, the recovery room. Processes are things that happen within the hospital system. So surgical checklists, antibiotic protocols um, would be some examples. And then patient features would be what the patient comes in with. Um, the type of um, pathology that the patient has, how long the patient has been waiting, and then again, outcomes, what we're looking at today. And then specifically disease characteristics and severity, you could also lump in with patient features. So some examples um, from a study that we did um, comparing Rwanda, South Africa, and the U.S., we looked at the top reasons why uh, people have emergency laparotomies for non-trauma. Um, and appendicitis was the most common type um, in both South Africa and Rwandan, but in the U.S. it's peptic ulcer disease. And then you can also see in the U.S. that adhesions from small bowel obstruction was the second most common, which didn't feature that prominently in Rwanda and South Africa. Um, the perioperative mortality rate ranged between 7 and 16 percent. Interestingly, um, statistically, there was no difference between th the three countries, but interestingly, in the U.S., um, the high mortality rate came from admitting sicker patients, meaning in the U.S. they were willing to operate on um, sicker patients, and particularly because they had an ICU service, um, of which Rwanda and South Africa were very limited, but I'll, I can talk more about that. And then specifically looking at risk factors for mortality, um, the type of pathology that the patient came in with was highly associated with mortality. So typhoid perforation in Rwanda and South Africa, and then mesenteric ischemia in the U.S. And those are likely no-brainers because we all know as surgeons that those are associated with high um, risk factors for death. So to go back to this quality of care thought again, let's look a little bit more at the process. So the process is what happens in the hospital with the infrastructure that you have. So to have another look at the ASOS trial, so Dr. Parker mentioned ASOS-1, which was a prospective cohort study collecting data across countries on all different types of surgery and seeing that there was increased mortality. What the ASOS group decided to do after that is to, to have a look at uh, where they could intervene to see if they could reduce mortality. And so this study was done in over 300 hospitals in over 300 African countries. They randomized by hospital. So they had a set of process changes, um, which what they called the intervention, which I'll go over in a second. 
and other hospitals were the control hospitals where they didn't make any interventions. And the, the outcome they were looking at was 30-day mortality. And so what was the package of care that they tried to change? So the first was admitting the patient to a higher care ward than had been planned before surgery. They didn't always have ICU, but sometimes they had what we call high care. Number two, increasing the frequency of post-operative nursing observations. Number three, assigning the patient to a bed visible from the nursing station. So in Africa, oftentimes there are large open wards, and there are some beds that are quite far from the nursing station. So the idea was to put patients closer to the nursing station. Number four, allowing family members to stay on the ward with the patient. And that might be counterintuitive for our U.S. colleagues here, or not allowed in those hospitals, but the nursing to patient ratio in Africa is often quite high. So the idea was that if there was a family member staying with the patient, that they could be um, recognizing um, unstable vital signs or a change in the patient's status and then alert the nurses. And then finally, placing a post-op surveillance bedside guide, guideline next to the patient's bedside visible so that any caregiver could see that. So this seemed like a very practical package of care to see if it could reduce mortality. But unfortunately, they did not show any difference in mortality. However, what I want to comment on is that the ability for the hospitals to implement all five of these process changes was not very high. Only 25% of them were able to do all these things. And then perhaps we can you know, also discuss a little bit later if we have time in the Q&A, what is possible and practical to be able to do in terms of process changes. The next um, thought would be the surgical safety checklist. So I think most of us know what the WHO surgical safety checklist is. It's been hailed to be you know, the most important thing in patient safety. Um, however, how much can we attribute that to patient outcomes? So this um, study was an observational cohort study, um, also as part of the Global Surge Initial Group, but they had over 440,000 patients and um, over almost 500 hospitals in 27 countries. And they showed that hospitals that used the checklist had the lowest mortality and other complications. However, they felt that this could reflect the wider quality of care in those hospitals where they use the checklist. In other words, was it the checklist or was it the checklist just a proxy for a hospital that had other processes in place to ensure the quality of care? The next thing we wanted to look at was another program that implemented another set of process changes to see if they could reduce surgical site infection. And this was specifically in Ethiopia, which is a low-income country. So this group, which is um, Called, was called Clean Cut, run by a group called Lifebox. Um, in five Ethiopian hospitals, they made six perioperative process changes that also they felt were very practical. They were very clear that they were not going to employ extra people, extra um, nurses to be able to carry out this process. This was meant to be in a very world, world um, or sort of lot, real life setting. Um, and the process changes that they made there was to ensure proper skin preparation um, in the operating room, to ensure that the field was sterile, to make sure the instruments were sterile, to make sure that the antibiotics were administered within 30 minutes of the operation, to have a proper gauze count, um, and to make sure that they use the WHO checklist. Again, things that might be um, process, what might be very common um, in most US hospitals, but certainly weren't um, uniformly done in Ethiopia. And what they showed with this study is that they decreased surgical site infections by one third by following this. Again, this was only done in one country in five hospitals, but they felt that they could show at least making specific changes in processes made a difference. So I wanted to turn our attention specifically to looking at acute appendicitis, which is the most common surgical emergency worldwide. Uh, we know it's a time sensitive condition like many other surgical um, conditions. And, you know, in trauma, we know that the first hour is one of the most important to be related to outcomes. Uh, but the question for appendicitis, and we don't really know, but, you know, how much of a delay is okay? And specifically, what factors um, are related to this de delay that could change outcomes? Um, so I wanted to use this example to talk about a different framework called the three delays framework. Oh, sorry, this is just to show that um, you can decrease mortality by up to 30% if you can reduce the time to care in trauma. So specifically, the three delays framework is another way of looking at um, 
access to care or trying to improve the quality of care. Um, what we want is to first look at the first delay, which is the delay to seeking care. So I'll use appendicitis um, again as the example. When a patient starts to have symptoms, which in this case is abdominal pain, what are the factors that go into the patient deciding to seek care? So in some societies, as soon as the patient starts having abdominal pain, they might go see a doctor. But in some cultures or some places where it's not so easy to find a hospital or a clinic, or they might not have health insurance, the patient might stay at home for a while, or they might not have trust in the healthcare system. The second one is delays to reaching care. Once the patient has decided, or the person with the abdominal pain has decided that they want to seek care, what are the delays in reaching care? Are there problems getting to the hospital? Are there cost-related problems? Is there a distance-related problem? And then the third delay is the delays to receiving care. And that's the part that most surgeons focus on, is what happens once the patient gets to care. But what I wanted to talk about is what happens before the patient gets to the hospital. And that's oftentimes not factors or delays that people who are not um, working in hospitals think about, but I think are also important contributors. Um, I'm working with a PhD student who did a systematic review on this about access to appendectomy in low and middle income countries. And I'll just highlight a few of the things that she found in her results. So people with appendicitis delayed seeking care oftentimes due to a lack of healthcare education, meaning that they did not know that there was such a thing as appendicitis or that severe abdominal pain could bring someone to the attention of a health practitioner. The other was financial or social barriers. So the inability to pay or the perceived inability to pay. And then social barriers, being told by the husband, other people in their family um, that they shouldn't go to the hospital um, for these symptoms. Looking at the second delay is the distance to health facilities. Um, these are how far away does the person live to the healthcare facility that can provide surgical care. In Africa, there are very few hospitals that actually provide surgical care, and many of them are located in the big urban cities. So people who live in rural areas, um, even um, if the hospital is an hour or two away, that sometimes is a prohibitive distance. And ambulances are often not an option or um, the family member or the patient would need to pay. And then the third delay, the delay in the hospital, some of the reasons for the delay to care was a delay in diagnosis. So many of the hospitals, as I mentioned, don't do surgery, but the patient might go to a different health facility first. And if they don't have um, ultrasound, CT scanners, or just a practitioner, a doctor or a nurse who can recognize the signs and symptoms of appendicitis, the patient might be delayed um, at that facility before they get referred to a surgeon. And then finally, even after the diagnosis is made, there's a real lack of infrastructure. So that's back to the structure um, or resources to treat the patient. And I'll talk more about that in a second. I did wanna mention one thing about traditional healers because we do have quite a lot of research going on about this. Um, at least in, in South Africa, we have a parallel system of health seeking, of, of health seeking uh, to practitioners who are considered indigenous healers or traditional healers. And many patients will go and seek care with um, these practitioners before they come into the health system. And because these people live closer to them in the community and are trusted part of the community, um, they are reasons, or seeking care with this group is one delay to seeking care in the formal sector. This is a very busy slide, but I just wanted to give an example of some of the interconnections of the delays to seeking care. So you see in the middle delay one, which is delay to seeking care. And some of these, um, if you look at the upper right, gender inequality and cultural disparities, girls are hiding their symptoms from their parents, um, males consuming an oral antibiotic before, cultural beliefs. If you look at the bottom um, left, consuming self-medications, home remedies, visiting a masseuse, um, patients visiting a traditional herbalist first. And so there's, there's many more, I won't go through all of them. And then the third one, delay to receiving care in the hospital, certainly during COVID, we had a lot of problems. But if you look over on the far left, you see delays of surgery until a diagnosis is made, reluctance of doctors and surgeons to make a decision, and then difficulty diagnosing children, females, elderly, and then HIV-positive patients. In South Africa, almost 30% of our patients are HIV-positive, and sometimes the complications of both HIV and the ARVs that they take can mask the um, the symptoms of appendicitis. 
And then this extremely busy slide, I don't expect anyone to read, but just to say that many of these delays are interconnected as well. Um, I wanted to show you another way of looking at the quality of care is to look at other factors, not just structures, processes, and then outcomes, um, or just the three delays of delay of um, seeking, reaching, and receiving, and then also remaining in care, but looking at um, other frameworks. We're doing, we're using these three frameworks for another study on trauma, and I won't go into too, too much detail, but just to make everybody aware that when we talk about quality, um, oftentimes people use the WHO health systems building blocks, which is in the middle, or they use the quality outcomes as defined by the Institute of Medicine. Um, and so they somewhat relate to the structure and processes, but they do go a little further. And so there, there's many of them listed there. I won't go into all of them now, but just to make you aware of them. And then I tried to overlay some of them on this Donabedian um, quality of care pathway. So the delays to seeking reaching care, equity issues, which is Institute of Medicines, the patient centeredness, and then the clinical effectiveness, which are sort of the outcomes, the facility readiness, how ready is your hospital for actually treating care? Um, what are the medicine supplies? Or who are the workforces, the nurses, the surgeons, and then the governance? You know, how much does your hospital care about or have protocols to make sure that emergency GI surgery can happen? Um, timeliness, again, the time delays, you know, how much does not seeking care right away for your appendicitis or your abdominal pain, how much does that affect outcomes? And I think that is the part of the research um, that is, is sort of missing. So in conclusion, um, emergency GI surgery is more common in low and middle income countries, and we certainly do have higher complication rates, including mortality. And we definitely need a multifactorial approach to reducing mortality um, and other complications. And I think when you're looking at how to improve the quality of care, don't forget about looking at structural issues, process issues, and then some of these other um, aspects of these other quality of care frameworks. And I think really importantly is as surgeons, we also need to identify delays in the care pathway that are outside the hospital and identify critical factors that could make a big difference in time delays that actually affect outcomes. Because if we, you know, if a delay of six hours doesn't really matter because the patient had to take different transport, then we shouldn't focus our interventions on that. But if there are delays from seeking care with indigenous healers that are causing more than 24-hour delays, that might make a big difference. And that's how we can um, find out where we can tailor our interventions to make the biggest impact. And that concludes my talk, and I look forward to the Q&A. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Chu. Um, Thank you for sharing your expertise and this information. We will now move into the Q&A section. And so this is for the audience. If you have any questions for our panelists, please enter them in the Q&A uh, box. Uh, somebody already just did it. For example, there is a question related to the appendicitis. Um, they say, uh, this is probably for Dr. Shu. Uh, do you have protocols for attending and diagnosis acute appendicitis or clinical, let's say, scores that can uh, guide your suspect? Oh, sure. So I think Dr. Parker can probably also chime in here, but I do think there are certain scores like the Alvarado score that are almost purely based, at least most of the scoring system, on clinical findings. However, we do find that in Africa, the symptoms are not necessarily presenting the exact same way, but um, there are some validated sort of protocols for that, yeah. Uh, there is another, uh, let's say question or, or a comment actually. Thank you, Dr. Catherine, for the very enlightening presentation. We have the same problems as the three uh, delays, mostly the first delay in Sudan, you, do you think integrating the traditional healers and educating the community on what is essential to report will reduce this issue? Uh, because a lack of uh, resources might prevent distributing the services closer to the, the communities. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I guess the first thing uh, would be that so far in our work with indigenous healers, we, we, we don't see them as adversaries, but we see them as other health practitioners because they, like it or not, community members seek care with indigenous healers. And many of them 
their belief in the disease origin could be different than ours. So for example, um, if a patient has a breast mass, you know, it might be because someone cursed them or there was something from the ancestors that gave them this mass. They don't necessarily just think of it as like, you know, can't, um, cells that, that are sort of abnormally proliferating, proliferating. So I think that's important. We have done some work already in Ghana with traditional bone setters. So um, fractures. So many, many patients, up to 90% seek care with the traditional bone setters first. But one of the issues that we found is that with the open fractures, many of them are getting osteomyelitis because the um, one of the practices to treat the open fractures was putting chicken manure into the open fractures. And so the initial discussions was just to discuss with the traditional bone healer some of their practices. And what the orthopedic surgeons found, and this was all initiated by the orthopedic Ghanaians, Ghanaian orthopedic surgeons, is that the indigenous bone setters wanted to know how to keep medical records. And they wanted to learn that from the orthopedic surgeons, written medical records. They also wanted a way to refer their patients for x-rays. And what the orthopedic surgeons asked out of them is for the open fractures, could they preferentially refer those to the hospital? And again, it wasn't like refer us all your patients or you want to steal your business. But it was, you know, is it quid pro quo? Can we do work together? And that has been an extremely successful program. And they're still working together to teach the indigenous bone setters some principles of orthopedic um, treatment. Here in South Africa, we're working with indigenous healers who treat general surgery conditions, abscesses, breast cancer, thyroid, goiters, and the like. Um, also, same idea to see if we can work together to find mutually beneficial solutions to get the patients to care faster, but not to take each other's business. So I guess the shorter answer is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. Thank you. Another question uh, from Ryan. He says, a recent study by Dr. Ran demonstrated that women across most Africa received fewer abdominal surgery than men. Have your studies also shown this disparity? If so, why do you think this is the case? This is for both panelists. Dr. Parker, you want to answer that one? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd love to start. Thanks for that uh, great question. And yes, we've we've also seen this in our setting. Um, when we looked at our failure to rescue rates, there was no discrepancy between men and women, um, making us think that it maybe it didn't exist um, in our setting. But as we delve deeper into that and looking at um, the complication rates and mortality rates uh, when controlling for the surgical risk score and the discharge diagnoses, we did find that women have higher rates of complications, particularly longer hospital, uh, hospital stays, um, and uh, as well as higher costs of care. Um, and when we kind of, as we look deeper into this, um, it, it seems like the delays to definitive care really are a challenge in our setting. Not so much the delay to seeking care, um, but getting from a, a clinic or an outside hospital to definitive care seems to be a challenge that we need to overcome. But yeah, thanks for that question. We observe that as well. Okay, Dr. Chu? Um, I've got a couple questions for Dr. Parker, if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so I've got three questions for you. Um, the first was in terms of the study you did when you established a critical care unit, uh, which I thought was, was fantastic. Um, what do you think specifically about establishing the critical care unit was actually responsible for the reduction mortality, if you could break it down at all? And then um, the second question is you showed some really nice cost savings data or cost data if you didn't, if the patients developed the complications, but you did identify them, the cost you would save. But have you ever done the costing to how much the critical care service costs? and how much per patient you'd be saving. So, you know, I'll give an extreme example. If you set up a critical care service and you have to put in a thousand patients, but you save three because they were under better observation, then the cost of their complications, the, the amount you save actually has to be weighed up against the cost of all a thousand patients that had to go into the critical care unit. And then the final question is here in South Africa, we have to, a real triage system into patients that can get into critical care units, because sometimes you only have three, four, five beds maximum. 
And there are many patients on the extreme of, well, like extremists that don't ever get into critical care because they're the ones that the least likely to survive. And so I was just wondering if you ever have to do that triage on your side. Sorry, a lot of questions. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the questions. Those are great. Um, so uh, we don't know exactly what within the, the critical care service was the most effective part. So there was a, a checklist used and implemented. Um, there was more teaching. Um, but I, I suspect that having some a resident readily available to the nursing staff to address issues um, and have open communication and be present makes a, a big difference in the recognition um, and then that relay of, of patient um, status. So I think that just having someone present is a, a big deal. Um, we would love to look at the, the cost, but really the cost is reallocating a resident to that service. So the resident is already, that cost was already there. They were in the operating room, they were in clinic, and then on the side, they were taking care of critically ill patients. So instead, one resident was kind of pulled to be present within the ICU. Um, so that hasn't increased the cost. So it seems like it's a high value. Um, there could potentially be more cost as people check more labs or more attentive. Um, and we could look at that. Uh, but we haven't specifically looked at the cost of of the service. We th think that it's um, pretty high value uh, reallocating um, a resident. Um, and then, yeah, it's a, a constant triage of the 13 critical care beds um, that doesn't include our recovery room, which functions as a critical care unit at times. Um, well, at all times, uh, but trying to uh, negotiate and determine who is uh, is going to get the best um, care, uh, and we also implement the the patients closest to the nursing station, um, and then move people uh, around into and out of the critical care units as best as we can determine. We don't have a scoring system or a formal system. Um, but it is a uh, a daily conversation. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Oh no, it said thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, a question for both panelists: What will be the needs and the priorities for global surgery in the next ten years? Uh, Dr. Parker, do you want to go first? So the needs for global surgery. Um, so I think as access to surgical care improves, so we have um, in my region, um, we have excellent training programs and those can always be improved, but access to surgery is improving. The, the next step is the quality of care that we provide that um, if you're going to have a, an appendectomy at um, any hospital, it's going to be a quality operation um, that happens. So I think that's maybe my vision for the next 10 years, but I would really love to hear Dr. Chu. Well, I'd actually have to agree. So for me, getting surgery to district hospitals um, would be kind of, to me, one of the most important priorities, but exactly as you said, how do you keep the quality up? Because first of all, surgeons don't work at most district hospitals. So if we're going to push surgery out to the district hospitals and their family physicians, medical officers, um, in many countries, you know, you have people, doctors that don't specialize in sort of jack of all trades, but they haven't done a residency in anything in particular, or you have um, clinical officers um, called mid-level providers um, who also can practice surgery. In fact, cesarean sections, I'm sure Dr. Parker knows in Kenya, done mostly by clinical officers uh, with great outcomes. But the real question is what type of surgery are they going to be doing at district hospitals? So we can probably clearly say they're not going to be doing liver transplant. Um, but, you know, are they going to be draining abscesses? I would probably say that's okay. But then you extend it to, can they do below the knee amputations? Because diabetic foot amputations, for example, are a huge need. 
Probably yes, but what about the anesthesia that goes with amputations? Because you have patients that have quite a lot of risk factors. And so you also have a non-specialist anesthetist also practicing that district hospital. You got to think about that. Appendicitis could be a good example because, you know, we all know that junior doctors, residents can do appendectomies, but if they go wrong or if it happens to be a colon cancer or some other problem, you know, they might be out of their comfort zone. And so, you know, should that be on the list? I think that one can debate a lot, but I think that one of the things for each country, and I think it would be different in each country, but to set some guidelines about the type of operations or the type of competency someone would need to have to work in a district hospital. And the real need is to have constant communication with specialists. So, you know, like any person who just becomes a fresh attending or is the senior resident, you're only as good as the, the senior colleagues that you work with, right? Like none of us function in the silo. And so if you're working in a district hospital, you're a family physician, you know how to do, you know, a, a hernia repair. But if you don't, or if you don't have any connection with specialists that work at the tertiary hospitals, the regional hospitals, I think that it is more challenging. One, because if there's a complication, though the first people to criticize you are going to be those surgeons at those regional and tertiary hospitals. Why didn't you refer the patient? But also, you know, there are hernias and then there's hernias. You might get into a situation that we all need a little bit of help of that lifeline. And so I do think a big role in global surgery is the development of telehealth or telemedicine or mHealth apps, easy ways like WhatsApp to communicate with more senior surgeons somewhere else. And the surgeons definitely need to be involved in this process. So, you know, if district hospitals by themselves are deciding to do surgery and you don't have the buy-in of the surgeons, I think it's difficult. And then the last thing, I, and I'll shut up, is I think national surgical planning is really important. So from the top, that the entire nation from the national level needs to decide that surgery is a priority as important as whatever, all the other parts that we call primary health care prevention because um, surgical care is part of prevention as well. And until we get that recognition, we're not going to get the resources. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Chu. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Uh, I think time is running out. There are no more questions. I just want to remind uh, the audience that uh, uh, the recently the International Relations Committee published a book, a free book entitled Gastrointestinal Surgical Emergencies, for the global surgery community. So feel free, you, you see the QR code here. You can download the book for free on the uh, ACS website. And uh, uh, so um, thank you all of us, all of you for joining uh, us today. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org. 